0: Welcome to episode 261 with my guest Andy Berman. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's uh, not a doctor's office. I'm not a therapist. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck the website for this show is mentalpod.com go there check it out there's surveys you can fill out maybe we'll read one on the uh, on the air you can um, join the forum you can read blogs guest blogs you can support the show financially um, so go uh, check that out a mentalpod is also the twitter handle that you can follow me at um, I leave tomorrow morning to go do a live show in Oakland. This will actually, this episode will have aired after I've done the show. So I don't really need to, uh, give out the specifics of it, but I'm gonna keep the surveys kind of, uh, short tonight, uh, cause I'm just nervous about traveling. It's funny, I'm not afraid to fly, but I'm nervous about all the other stuff around it. Hey, you know, is the, is the, my ride gonna come on time? Is, uh, <laughs> How long is a line going to be at security? Uh, is my luggage going to get lost? Uh, on and on and on and on. Um, so I want to kick this off with a... Oh, and by the way, if you're in San Francisco and you're listening to this po- this episode, and it's still Friday, uh, January 22nd, I'll be pre- performing at 10.30 uh, tonight at Cobb's Comedy Theater uh, doing uh, part of a political satire show. Um so any of you in San Francisco, I should have probably promoted that earlier, but um that's me. Terrible human being. This is an email that I got from uh a listener and uh she calls herself uh Michelle. And uh she writes and she's a mom and she writes, Sleep is a challenge lately. Life is hard lately, not bad quite good in some ways but hard and exhausting a long while back you said something that stuck with me how the word enough can be so damaging not good enough not cool enough not pretty enough not strong enough ways of telling ourselves we should be more than we are and that leave us unable to take joy in ourselves as we are it's that last one that gets to me not strong enough Sometimes it's an endless chant in my head. I'm not strong enough to do this. I'm not strong enough to get out of bed to get the kids ready for school, to deal with my mother's oddities or my ex's lack of planning. I'm not strong enough to manage all that with a full day of work in between. Constantly those words in some variation, and I'm so tired that it seems believable. And the thing is, I obviously am strong enough because most of those things get done every single week. Week after week, no matter what new stress or pressure comes along, I make everything work. So I am strong enough, but I think sometimes I wish I wasn't. Every now and then I'll hear a story where someone has a breakdown, gets locked down for a while. The hospitals sound miserable, but even though I understand that it would be a terrible experience, I find myself just a little bit envious. Sometimes I wish I could just lay in bed and ignore everything. I never do. I'm not even sure I could. Not for long at least, but it's become a sort of daydream. Of somehow reaching a point where I just don't care enough to make the effort. But I do. I fear that I'm inadequate. Fear that I'm inadequate. So recently I've been punching myself a lot. Sometimes I feel like my full-time job. Mental illness I'm here with Andy Berman, and we literally just met each other five minutes ago. He has a book uh, uh, called Electro Boy, which is a memoir of mania, and we're going to talk about his, uh, his mania. Um, you were recommended to me. I know almost nothing about you other than listeners have said you have to get Andy Berman on. You have to get Andy Berman on. That was me. I call it a lot. <laughs> you have a bunch of different Twitter handles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, the listeners are usually right. And so uh, I am. here we are. <laughs> mm-hmm. Here we are. Um, where do we begin with uh, with your story? Where we are you from? We begin at the
1: end. Okay. <laughs> uh, when the coffin was dropped into the ground, uh, where do we begin? We usually begin um, at the beginning. Let's do that then um how old I, are
0: you where were you born
1: i'm a jersey boy mm-hmm. new jersey uh you okay
0: with me asking you how old you are
1: yeah okay uh, as of when tomorrow's <laughs> my birthday no it's not uh i am 53 the father of two girls who are eight and ten
0: and married or not married divorced divorced the second choice on the application <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. and how long ago did divorce happen
1: uh i think before the children were born uh two years after
0: okay yeah it was a All quick right. one okay uh um, and obviously you're still in their lives or very much very much do they very live much. here or in jersey they live here okay in los angeles Great. with me and what do you do for uh for a living uh i am a
1: carpenter oh no <laughs> Isn't there but a then song? again, no, <laughs> no, there's a song. If, if I were, I were carpenter. carpenter, but then again, if, Carp- no. if I were carpenter and you were a lady. lady,
0: that's a different song. Oh, okay. The the one I was referencing was the Elton John song. How does that one go? Uh, this the. The song's for you, or uh, okay, yeah. I'm gonna go. if I were a carpenter, but then again, no. Okay, for a man right, right, right. Okay, got who may have done a, and a traveling, traveling show. show. Yeah. Okay, uh, The question was... Um, your song is the
1: name of the Elton John right, song. Yeah. Right. Um, for somebody. I think it's for yeah. somebody. Okay. Uh, so what, what do you do to make your living? I'm a writer. And I wrote this book called Electro Boy, A Memoir of Media. Well, that I know. I speak. It's right in front of me. I speak about mental health, I speak about suicide prevention, I speak about getting well, I don't speak about recovery, I'm not a big fan of recovery, I don't believe in recovery, everyone
0: hates me for saying, I don't believe in recovery. I'm not a fan of you saying that, but I don't hate you for it.
1: No, I'm a believer in learning how to cope and manage an illness. I don't think there's ever going to be an end to my saying, I don't think I'll ever be able to say, I don't have bipolar disorder. Others would disagree. Others would say, Annie, I don't think you have bipolar disorder. I think you've been through the worst of it. But I th- oh, oh, I would I, but agree I, with you But then. I think it lurks around the corner. So that's why I'm saying recovery is, you know, it's one of those – final things like people
0: yes no i'm on your side i thought you meant you don't believe in in people getting into recovery like from addictions to drug and alcohol i was like
1: "Mm oh he (laughs) needs to leave (laughs) no but i mean people have said people have said well you know i just you know is there light at the end of the tunnel and you know i want to get to the end of that tunnel there's no end shit there's no end just managing it like right don't worry about the light there if there's some light seeping in the tunnel just grab it yes because if you try to
0: go from a to z you usually don't get well and you're going to be very disappointed and it's going to add to your depression i mean part part of um i think living with it is surrendering to the parts of it that uh, that you don't have control over agree what for you what are agree. the what are the those well let's let's do the childhood first let's, uh, let's talk very about
1: easy childhood kidding um I, I mean today they would have known at age five or six that there was something clearly wrong then they thought you were running up your credit cards i was well close to it that was like it, that was you know 10 years later he's buying a lot of glue and eating it uh no but he's taking dad's records and cleaning them in turpentine he's burying garbage in the backyard he's polishing doorknobs He's taking little matchbox cars, stripping wires from uh, lamps, taping them around the matchbox cars, and plugging them in and getting shocked. Just is that why Electro Boy? No, but maybe that was the first sign of Electro Boy. So was
0: that your mania that you were doing this?
1: No, it was just kind of uh, it was kind of obsessive compulsive kind of play. I mean, it was you know burying garbage. Yeah, that's uh, an odd one. It's an odd one,
0: but I'd like to do that.
1: I still would like to do that.
0: Did you at least uh, have the foresight to put a little methane pipe uh, coming out of it?
1: No, I did not. You hate the earth. I, you, I, you hate the earth. No, I just put things that were biodegradable. I mean, I was the kid who took the frog that you dissected home, uh, d- dissected at school. I brought it home and I you know, before mom and dad came home from work, I put it in the oven. So three hours later, the house just smelled like formaldehyde. And you must have been a handful. I was tough. I was tough. And I was also the crazy kid who was... I mean, you don't like to use the word crazy. I'll never...
0: You know what? I feel like it's, you know, the F word among uh, gay people or the N word among uh, African-American people. I feel like we can use it, but if somebody... um, would talk about people that have mental illness and they don't know anybody or they don't suffer from it and they're like, you know, they're crazy. I would be offended. Well, I mean, I've been called, you know, psycho, uh,
1: freak, lunatic. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. I'm I not mean, a I fan was, of once that. I was wearing my Electro Boy shirt, which I'm not wearing right now, but I could be because no one couldn't see. And um, someone said, oh my God, I read that book. I said... Um, really, what did you think? And he said, that guy is fucking crazy. <laughs> he said, what did you think of it? I said, I loved it. I thought it was really crazy, too. And uh, he said, um, you know, I've met him before. <laughs> oh, I said, fantastic. really? What, what's he like? <laughs> he said, you know, he's actually a really nice guy. And I said, you know, I wrote that book. And he said, you wrote that book? I said, yeah, I wrote that book. He said, I'm totally confused. I said, no, I'm the one who's supposed to be totally confused because you said you met that guy. So. And how was it resolved? Uh, we're good friends. We're very good friends now. Yeah. Really? I mean, it's a book that he read when he was not in Los Angeles. He realized he wasn't well, that he probably had bipolar disorder, and he came to LA and got treatment. This guy that you Yeah, met. This guy. At Rite Aid in Beverly Hills, yeah. And you are, and you talk to him now. I talk to everybody. I mean, <laughs> it's scary. I talk to anybody, everybody.
0: And you're friends with this guy now. Yes, yeah. Is that a, is that odd? No, it's just so weird that you would bump into somebody and that and that you would have that conversation. It's uh, I no, I make friends with people I have on the show that people that you know i run into at coffee shops right. i was just still trying to follow the the tail end of the the uh your anecdote uh about meeting this guy and yes. him. so you, you did eventually he did eventually when you said i wrote it he then went oh okay he cried he cried he cried, and he cried he, first and he said
1: I, mean, I can't believe i'm meeting
0: you you're the reason that i finally came to los angeles to get well why, why come to Los Angeles to get well? That seems like the last uh, place on the list. <laughs> I, I
1: felt like saying that, too. Uh, no, he uh, he had found a doctor who was referred to him and who happened to be in L.A. And great psychiatrists, let me tell you, are hard to come by. You're not kidding. Yeah. they are like six in North America. It's funny. People always say, because I live in L.A., uh, do you know a great— um psychiatrist. i'm like yeah one's in vancouver one's in, <laughs> one's in new york um uh, one's in dallas i'm not kidding
0: you know so well there's a great one in the bay area named uh, dr melanie watkins who we had as a guest and i wish she lived in la because uh anybody that hasn't listened to her episode should listen to it she's very compassionate really um, and she's a psychiatrist yes which she's is a psychiatrist quite ironic It is, but there there are good ones. There are good ones out there. there. there But I've I've had, uh, I would say, the majority of psychiatrists that I've had have have not been um, good. Right. Have not been good. I've seen probably twelve, and I have loved one. And what was it about the ones you didn't like that was was
1: bad? Uh, I was being processed. Uh, I was being diagnosed quickly and incorrectly in 45 minutes. Why do you got a nitpick? What? Why do you got <laughs> exactly. a nitpick? Exactly. I was being diagnosed with depression. Seven times with depression. Well, isn't that part of uh, no, bipolar? I never I never showed. I mean, but 99% of, of my behavior was manic. Oh, okay. So, of course, I'm not going to present myself to a doctor when I'm manic because I'm on top of the world. But you don't need help. I don't need help. That but place. that 1% of the time that was so dark, I would... See a psychiatrist who would say, "Oh my God, you know." You're-
0: but you, and you told him about the mania, but he didn't. No, seem I didn't to tell be- about
1: the mania. Well, the mania was it? my big
0: secret. Then, then why wouldn't he think that you were depressed if he didn't know about the mania? He just you got it. the depression.
1: I, I, I'm not faulting. Him, I'm not faulting any of these doctors. I presented myself, but it's very common, and not to share too much information about you know the high life.
0: Mm-hmm. So then, I guess my question is, and I'm, and I'm not trying to grill you, but why blame them if they didn't have the full? all the details because they
1: didn't ask the questions they didn't say um why are you paying me with three hundred dollars in cash well i mean if you read Electable, you'll find out i was counterfeiting artwork so i was counterfeiting artwork when i was really manic so you know you can't see a psychiatrist you know twice a week and so give them you know twenty four hundred dollars a month in cash don't you think he should have said why are you paying me in cash mm. That's one example. But a lot of doctors never ask questions. The first great psychiatrist I went to finally asked the question, you know, what drugs do you take? Do you use street drugs? Do you ever use prescription drugs excessively? Do you buy them um, on your own or do you just take them as prescribed? But she really got down to it. First female I ever saw, by the way.
0: I'm fascinated by the counterfeiting
1: artwork. Oh, how did that come about? (laughs) So was the government. <laughs> How did that come about? I was working. Uh, this is in the ooh, early 90s for an artist in New York. I was his publicity guy and his dealer. His name was Mark Kostabi mm-hmm. And uh, he was an artist who didn't paint any of his own paintings. He just came up with the ideas for them. Actually, he had a think tank, another group of people who came up with them. He didn't paint them. He just oversaw the studio. That sounds incredibly soulless. Um, He is incredibly soulless, but I became incredibly friendly with him and we built this, you know, $200,000 a year business into a $5 million a year business very, very quickly. I generated the publicity. I sold whatever I could sell all over the country. And then I was, you know, racing around the globe, quite manic. And thought, Hmm, maybe since he's even allowing me to sign these paintings, once they're finished, I could set up my own studio with one of his artists. She could paint the paintings. I could sign them and there won't be any more of this 15% commission. Now there'll be a hundred percent commission, which seemed great, (laughs) you know, and I got to travel too. So that went on for about two years. I feel like I got
0: caught. I feel like I'm interviewing uh, uh yeah. Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio from the it was, Catch you know, Me If You what Can. That's what people say
1: about Electric Boy. It's kind of a cop out, but they say, "Oh yeah, it's kind of like um, a beautiful mind meets Catch Me If You Can." And I have to say, well, not exactly, um, but I'll go with it cuz it's not bad."
0: Uh, have you seen the documentary Tim's Vermeer? Yes. It's, Anybody who hasn't seen it, see it. He doesn't try to sell it. Uh, There's also a great one about a guy that is an art uh, counterfeiter. The one Um, who bakes his paintings? No. No, this is a different guy who keeps – he really doesn't do it for the money because what he does is he donates them to museums and he gets off on seeing museums being fooled by – Is this uh, Paul Rebin from San Francisco? No, he was a
1: client of mine i, I, no. I, I promoted that. no guy.
0: this if I heard the guy's name i would uh I would know that uh the now what is the name of it i don't know. I can't remember the name don't of it It's know. a documentary but it, it, it about didn't this. go
1: on too long because my problem with the mania was that I told everybody what I was doing I'd say you can't believe it. I just went to Japan. I just sold fifty uh oils on canvas. I sold an edition of two hundred uh prints. And I smuggled um eight hundred thousand dollars back into the country. And and this was all true? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I put the, I would hide the money in my freezer, I would call it my cold cash and you know what was interesting is like nobody nobody was guessing anything was wrong with me. They just thought I was me. You know, the same thing. They thought I was the same guy, you know, you know, bearing the garbage in the backyard and polishing the doorknobs and you know, putting my dad's record albums in turpentine.
0: Do you think it's a common thing for uh, morality to get slippery when people are in mania?
1: Absolutely, oh, out the window. Okay. Is that slippery? Yes. Yeah.
0: Gone. Yeah. I was trying. I was trying not to be um too broad, and, yeah. and because I know people. Uh, well, be out the window sometimes.
1: because I think I think. The, I, I think there, I remember saying, well, you know, there are no consequences. People would say, Andy, you know, you, you may get in trouble. I had friends I would, uh, drop money off with in several different countries and they'd say, aren't you nervous you're going to get in trouble? And I'd say, no, I've, what kind of trouble? There are no consequences here. I mean, I would tell bartenders, you know, <laughs> I've got $25,000 here. Make sure everyone has a drink. And he'd be like, well, there are only 10 people here. You know, I mean, totally so gone.
0: How did it catch up with you?
1: Um, how did it catch up with me? I got a phone call at four in the morning from the artist that I worked for and was counterfeiting. Uh, I was keeping him happy too, legitimately selling a lot of his work. I was just selling more of my work. If you were a drug dealer, you'd have been shot. Uh, yes. But, uh, so he called and he said, I'm in Tokyo and there's something very strange here. I said, what? He said, there are a lot of paintings I've never seen. I said, well, you don't oversee the production of your work. I mean, do they look any different? He said, I don't know somehow. Yeah, I think you are. I think you are getting other paintings out there and I'm not aware of them. So I figured at five in the morning, best idea would be just to pretend the call never happened. Got dressed, took a shower, got dressed, went to work. But when I got to work and this was in New York, um, on 37th street, um, and ninth Avenue, there was police tape around the building. And I thought, Oh, that's, probably not good for me because uh so i decided not to go to work that day i went to uh my lawyer's office and my lawyer said well we've got a problem here because he wants to see you on rikers island and i was like
0: no i'm too terrible place to meet for lunch (laughs)
1: terrible place i'm this nice suburban boy that's too tough for me I don't think I can take it. So, um, I waited for two years to be indicted and then I was indicted.
0: You just made it difficult for them to serve you papers. Is that it? No,
1: no, 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 no. I mean, uh, the Manhattan DA didn't want to take on the case. Uh, but somebody wanted to take on the case because it was the, it was the era of art fraud and artists not paying taxes. So they wanted to, you know, they wanted to nail someone who was young. I was very young at the time. I was, um, 28. 29 uh so the brooklyn da took the case and nailed me on five counts of wire fraud because i would have people transferring mm. money into my personal account it was exhausting i was very tiring very a lot of jet lag
0: <laughs> when was and so did you do any time
1: yeah yeah i mean the reason i'm uh smiling and laughing is because it was such a crazy time in my life and I was so unwell and not really, not really diagnosed yet that I didn't even know that this crazy story that I was watching on a screen, you know, I didn't know that the defendant at the trial was me. I had no idea. What do you mean? I, I, I was aware that they were prosecuting somebody by the name of Andrew D Berman, but I had no sense that it was me. Help
0: me understand that.
1: I was disconnected from. Were you dissociating? I was, I was somewhat dissociated, but I was more interested in the process, in the case, in the trial selection, in the jury selection, in what my defense attorney was going to do, which was not allow me to testify because in 30 seconds I would have been nailed. His goal was to keep me off the stand. He did. It wasn't tough. Um, so I was, uh, I was charged with five counts of wire fraud. I was only found guilty of one. So it was really just, when I went back to write Electroboy, boy, it's interesting because I looked at the, uh, at the jury's notes and their little post-its and the forewoman woman wrote to the judge. Um, we're not sure what he's guilty of. So we don't know what to do. And the judge wrote back, you have to know exactly what he's guilty of. And you have to be very specific on each count otherwise you know you can't find him guilty but uh they didn't really seem to understand the case and the judge was fantastic um very very old man um i think he was maybe i don't know, george burns george burns's older brother uh but you know when they wheeled these fakes these counterfeits out and put them in front of the artist uh the prosecutor said, um, "So is is this a real painting?" He said, "I don't know, but if it's not a real painting, it's a really good copy." And then you know, my attorney was saying, "But none of these are painted by you, anyhow. Most of them aren't signed by you, so aren't they all fakes?" So we put into question whether or not his art was real, or if, mm. or not or not real. Of course, this devalued his work. You know. Four seconds yeah. later, and he quickly moved to Italy and has never come back to this country. And we don't speak.
0: Um, well, I mean, before we get into the to the mental illness aspect of it, I mean, don't you believe that, that a crime was committed against him? Whether you like his art or not, what he was doing was legal, right?
1: Correct. Okay. Do I believe that I counterfeited his works? Mm. Absolutely. Okay. But I believe that his works were counterfeit too.
0: Okay. But his seems like were were done in a way that was ethically a little greasy, but legally Ethically
1: greasy. Um but uh certainly what I was doing was greasier. Yeah. Yeah, on the greasy scale. Do you know the greasy scale? I do. Yeah, uh, I'm a nine on the greasy scale. <laughs> I was a 17 on the greasy <laughs> scale. He was about a 14. Um, so that well, thank was, you
0: for being honest about this. How much time did you do?
1: Uh, I was very lucky because I was facing 25 years in prison. Then on the one count, I was in, I was indicted on one count. Um, I was facing five years. Um, I ended up serving. 5 months in a federal facility and uh 5 months under house arrest which was worse than being in a federal facility because in a federal facility you know my mania which was still moving and still not under control you know I wanted to be everyone's best friend in prison and I wanted to write letters to their lawyers and their judges and uh house arrest was lonely <laughs> 4 hours outside a day with a an ankle bracelet, a monitor, and uh, but I was pretty good. I only screwed up once. But um, what was prison like? I was going to say, <laughs> <laughs> prison was. Uh, it was a federal prison. Uh, it was. A, it was a. It was called uh, a CCC, a Community Correctional Center. It was in Manhattan because my attorney fought that I needed uh, psychiatric care. I mean, that wasn't really. To, that was a no-brainer. Did you uh, disagree with him then? No, I didn't. I, okay. I needed to be near a doctor because I had no idea, really, what I had done. So, is that how you came to grips
0: with with being bipolar? Pretty what's, much. Was
1: through through going to jail. Pretty much. Wow. Yeah, it was. It was very much on the edge. It was like I was aware that something was definitely wrong. That this guy who had just been convicted could have thought that this was okay to do, and had hundreds of thousands of dollars laying around in cash and millions more all around the world that I had left with people or had donated to people or given to people, you know, to make documentary films about the homeless, to start, um, a dance studio in Germany. I mean, anybody who wanted money should have been very close to me at the time.
0: How much were you
1: sleeping a night? (laughs) I was say, how much were you spending a night? (laughs) Uh, how much was I sleeping a night? Good question. I wasn't sleeping. Maybe, um, maybe. Two or three hours every three days. Would you get exhausted? Eventually, I'd kind of collapse and collapse for six hours and start again.
0: And Um, would you feel refreshed when you woke up after collapsing for six hours? Yeah, I
1: felt pretty good. I felt pretty good. I love sleep now. Love it.
0: Was your body uh, starting to break down or fatigue or was it just kind of... I was
1: very, very thin. I wasn't really eating and I wasn't sleeping and I was just... You know, medication that I had started wasn't really doing anything for me. Um, I wasn't a well guy, but I was so disconnected from the fact that I was that guy. So Um, back to uh, prison. Back to prison. How was prison? Yeah. Um, hot. How many stars did you give your prison? <laughs> <laughs> uh, my, well, that's very funny. The towels were itchy. No, we're going to three get,
0: stars. Please
1: tell me to get back to the, to the star question. Um, prison was um, hot. I went in on August 27th, 1993. Um, it was about 114 degrees. Um Great group of people that I met. I mean, I was one of the few non-English speakers, so I had to figure that out quickly.
0: And was it a uh, minimum security?
1: It was a minimum security prison, and a lot of the guys there were very young. They were younger than me, um, and they were transitioning. They had mostly been in prison for uh, uh, drug trafficking, but they had been doing it since they were 16 or 17. So after they had served five years this is this was the place they came through kind of their halfway house yeah it was the it kind of was a halfway house uh it was a vending machine that was one of the highlights oh yeah um, mm-hmm. um men and women together in this facility really yeah most of the women were pregnant uh my mother came to visit me my mom and dad would come to visit me. But my mom came the first time and she said, is this where, is this, is this where we have to visit you? I was like, well, this is it. I mean, like, what did did, she think? I think she thought it would be nicer. You know, I think she was imagining prison from TV. This was really dirty, hot, sweaty. Mm. And, um, but you know, they had diet Coke (laughs) <laughs> that made me very happy because that's what you needed. Caffeine. And what I needed was caffeine. Yeah, that was great. But so I was there for five months. I made the best of it. Every day took 742 hours. I was like, Oh my God, I got to watch Melrose place. It's the only show I got to watch. I had no other choice, but I turned everyone on to Melrose place. Um, in English. um, but you said, how many stars would I give this prison? Listen to this. One day I get a phone call. I, I was living in LA and they said, you're not going to believe it. But Esmore, Esmore community correctional center has been taken over and turned, been turned into a five star hotel. <laughs> okay. In New York city, you know, within Manhattan. I was like, no way. Okay. It, l- it took me about a day. Um, and I called the editor of New York magazine and I said, I have to go back as a guest. I really do. I have to go back. Okay. So I went back and it was, it was beautiful. And I, I asked them if I could pick my own room because I wanted to be on the third floor. And I picked, it was,
0: you know. It was, and was it the literal well, it room a, that you had been in? As, as close, close to it
1: as possible. Yeah. But it was a boutique hotel. Hotel. I mean, it was like beautiful headboard you know, an animal skin rug, beautiful sauna shower. And I was thinking, oh, my God. Like, I mean, all these places that I, I knew were outside that I could never order from. These Chinese food places, these pizza places, I'm going to order from them now. And I did. It was so much fun. I loved how that it. food taste? It was really good. I never was able. I mean, you know, I was just used to the vending machine. Um, but then I went downstairs and I said, I, I, I said, i um, what was this place before? It was this beautiful hotel. And uh, the front desk clerk said, I don't know. I can bring the manager out. And um, I said, what was this place? And he said, uh, it was some kind of federal building. So desperately wanted to tell him. So then I went into the oh, library. I bet he knew. He just of course probably he didn't knew. want I to wasn't say it, not yeah. done yet. Okay. So then I went into there. They had a beautiful library with a fireplace. And I was like, oh, my God, Look they still have some of the books that were in the original prison library. Fuck these fuckers. I'm putting a copy of Electrovoy Boy in the prison, in what was the prison library. Here I am. I'm writing about the prison. Now it's here. So I went back and I said, you know, it's really weird. A lot of those books are, I mean, I've seen those books before. I don't know where. I said, you know what? I think this was the prison that I stayed in. And he said to me, really? <laughs> I said, you know, this was a prison, don't you? He said, yeah, I think Leona Helmsley was here. And I said, she was. And then you, this place used to be called Esmore Cor- Community Correctional Center. I said, and I was here. <laughs> and then he was very upset because he had seen camera crews in and photographers and in, in the morning, and I've been photographing all of it and documenting it. So I was not very welcome, but I only stayed one night. You are a shit. Four hundred and seventy five dollars. You're a shit starter, you know that? No, well, you think. <laughs> Four hundred and seventy five dollars. I was dying. And the takeout was like seventy five.
0: So let's go back to your childhood. What was what was your childhood like? Um How many kids in your family?
1: Uh two kids. I had an older sister, um, had a dad, mom, um, very normal suburban childhood went to a public school that was kind of good school went to a public high school um i was always a little bit different than all kids i mean had lots of friends i was very outgoing but you know i wasn't the one who you know i remember senior year you know high school everyone had to be in the senior chorus and i was like oh shit hate singing i don't sing well I'm not going to be in the senior course. Remember, the principal said, well, you're going to have to do something else as a project. And I was like, oh, great. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to uh, study Mandarin Chinese. So I would take a, I lived in New Jersey. It was only 10 miles from New York. So I would take a bus into the city and I would go to this Chinese class and then I'd spend, you know, you live in the suburbs. The city's like really 3000 miles away. Hmm. So I started exploring the city. So I would go to, I'd take my mandarin class which was kind of fun. And but then you know, I was like I was exploring like live sex shows um Times Square when Times Square was Times Square and lots of fun. Um you know, I really started exploring things that were um um dark and um a little bit edgy. Um and I knew I knew I was starting to cause some trouble. Because I could have just gone along and sung some of those Christmas carols, but I hated
0: mm-hmm. them. So as a high schooler, you were you were starting to get into uh, taboo sexual situations? Um, I, I yeah. guess they were taboo. I mean, I was
1: too well, young. Too well, you young said to, they were
0: dark and edgy. Well, they were live sex shows. I mean, right. you know, they're not going to be very oh, pure. Oh, so you weren't a participant. You were just... Not yet. Not yet. Not okay. yet. <laughs> um, and one of the things I'm... I'm saying this to the listeners uh that that aren't familiar with mania but one of the things that can come with mania is um uh acting out sexually gambling acting out um, well i mean um being
1: sexually inappropriate uh spending money excessively gambling uh all different kinds of addictions starting projects that are grandiose starting product projects that are grandiose can I say that a thousand times yes I've started many
0: of those do you are you comfortable giving us some snapshots of your sexual mania uh absolutely hit us if,
1: hit us with it if I was <laughs> uncomfortable I would not be here I decided after uh graduating from college I don't know how that happened that was a miracle I still have nightmares that I go to get my diploma, and they say, wait, you never went to class. I think everybody has yeah, that I know, but I, I do too. Yeah, I know. That's mine. Uh, I decided um, my friends were going to business school, law school. You know, this is the mid-'80s. This is yuppie time. Med school, law school, business school, all these schools. I'm like, oh, wow, look. Uh, you know, I'm in great shape, you know, um, really good physical shape. I'm going to do that. Look at that. there." look, that's a strip club. Like I can go there and strip. That'd be amazing. Wouldn't it? Um, I did that, but I told it out of sequence because I, what I actually did, my cover was I was interested in publicity and I went to work for Giorgio Armani. Um, he didn't have a freestanding store in the country. Um, and I went to work for his, uh, CEO who was building the brand in this country and building the first store on Madison Avenue. And there were like 300 people who wanted that job. But of course I filled out the application appropriately. I was fluent in Italian, um, French, Spanish and English. So, Really? No, I wasn't fluent in any of those, except English. (laughs) But she was not fluent in English, (laughs) so she couldn't really read. So
0: you bullshitted.
1: I bullshitted my way in. I looked really good, and then I didn't understand exactly what my job was until she told me what the job was. I write about it in the book, and um, I became um, Mr. Armani's, uh, and his partner, um, uh, became their pimp. I would find... Young men, who were go-go boys, hustlers, strippers, and bring them to the Carlisle Hotel where they stayed, and they were they were paid huge sums of money. So, and I was paid a percentage, my fifteen percent. But then I was like, "Oh mm,
0: man!" And so, becoming a stripper was a way for you to meet these guys to to bring them back to them.
1: Uh, n- n- I could tell the story that way, but that's not exactly how it happened. I realized, wait a second. These guys are making I'm only making 15% of what they're making. Sometimes they're making like $1,000 a night. I don't need to make 150 if I can make 1,000. So, let me go do the stripping thing and then let me be a hustler, too. Oh. Okay. But by day, I was the Giorgio Armani publicity guy. Okay. You know, I made sure that, you know, my boss had her um her orchid was always fresh, and
0: so was her espresso.: and That's not a euphemism for something that. It- no, but I like OK it. I like it <laughs> because it sounds like I you like- went down on her while she was drinking her espresso. Yeah <laughs> Just keeping Trust your Orchid me, though, fresh man. Her,
1: her orchid was so far from fresh. Uh, but she liked me for some odd reason. I was the biggest fake, I think, and she was the biggest fake, and Armani was the biggest she- fake. People in the fashion industry, yeah. And this was, uh, you know, this was the time when you know Richard Gere was the big Armani guy. This is yeah. American Gigolo. Oh, so it was like I yeah. was kind of like recreating the whole thing, and then I had this great idea, like, oh my god, isn't it funny? Like the sample size is my size, so these clothes are really my clothes. I mean, <laughs> and I would work like forty hours. I mean, I was making so much money there, I didn't really even need to be stripping or hustling. I was working like seventy hours a week and making.
0: A lot of money at the time for 1985. So why do that? Why? Was it because sexually you wanted to prostitute yourself? I was very curious. Had you ever had uh, sex with uh, men before then? Um, No. No. Not yet.
1: But it made up for lost time. Okay. I was living with my girlfriend at the time. Okay. Lived with her for a long time. Six years. And she knew I was working for Armani.
0: Everybody knew I was working for Armani because okay. everyone saw my clothes. They were great. No one saw me without clothes. Okay. So <laughs> it was more of a sexual pursuit than a financial pursuit on on your end. It was a
1: sexual pursuit for okay. sure. So but right. there, were, there were other sexual pursuits too. Um, but that was the most outlandish one. I mean, I took on a new name. I mean, I became this character named Eric Coulter, who was a stripper. Um, And I befriended all of these porn stars. Uh, It was very odd. Very, very odd. And I knew it was odd, but I kept going with it. I kept thinking, well, maybe it'll take me here. It took me nowhere good. I mean... What were the places it took you? um, It took me to thinking that I should try everything once, which was bad. Um, I mean, some of the things were okay. I mean you know, I thought I could do anything. And the point was I would start all these projects. Like you just said before, I started raising money for an independent film. Um, I wanted to, uh, I became the gossip columnist at New York magazine without any credentials or skills, but I was very good at it. Uh, I would
0: make up half the stories, but, most of the stories are made you, up. Your story is Catch Me If You Can. It is. is it? Yeah, I'm sorry if that offends if you. That no, it's, okay. you. it's, no, 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 it's, it's fun. It's fascinating. Mm. It is fascinating. Mm. So I became
1: a gossip columnist, and I would piss everyone off. I remember, you know, someone said, go to the new uh, building that Donald Trump has built on Central Park South and see if you can find out anything interesting. And I came up with a story that... Um, The construction workers had spray painted a um, big vagina on the wall in uh, one of the one of these huge penthouses that they were building. And underneath it, it said, eat at Ivana's. And And I actually you
0: made you made the whole thing up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But I believed it. I I believed it. I really didn't know the difference between gossip and. The truth, or or truth, and what's the epithet of truth? Oh my God, Uh, fiction. Okay,
0: is that you? Is that you? Just letting yourself off the hook, or 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 you truly? um, Well. question no (laughs) Uh, no i don't say is that you just letting yourself off the hook no i actually
1: i was going you know 200 miles an hour and i was like oh my god i gotta deliver i mean this new york magazine editor wants good stuff i better give him good stuff i can make it up everyone else is probably making it up i didn't know that everyone else was having things fact checked and (laughs) i didn't know i mean i had no idea i had no idea and then I, I was in the public relations business for a long time and I was generating really great press for all kinds of people, you know, diet, doctors, exercise gurus, you know, anybody who had something to sell. And I'd be like, wait, I know how to make you stand apart from all the others. Just puff it up. That's what publicity is. I mean, hmm. you got to be careful. But, you know, I once put a uh, a doctor on, uh, this is when there was a Donahue show. I put him on the Donahue show. I never wanted him to meet the producer. And I write about him in Electro Boy. His name was uh Dr. Stuart Berger, who wrote a book called The Immune Power Diet. He was almost 400 pounds. And when he showed up to do the live Donahue show, everybody was like, uh oh.
0: <laughs> How's this gonna work? Uh anyhow, yeah, he died at age 40. Uh, uh, but getting back to the um snapshots from uh the the acting out uh, yes. sexually. So you're exploring this part of your sexuality. Had you ever considered yourself bisexual until that point where you... I, I think I think I always had considered
1: myself bisexual. I, in the book, I say I'm omnisexual. That wasn't really my idea. It was someone else said, mm, yeah. let's come up. Let's- I think
0: they're the, the, actually a pansexual, I believe, is what is what? Yeah, that doesn't
1: sound very people sexy. People
0: call it. Pan, <laughs> yeah, think about two Friday. <laughs> it means you can only fuck to w- uh, while Pan's Labyrinth is on, on DVD. Yeah, think of that. Not Pan. streaming.
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. Just
0: on DVD. So, and just the extras.
1: So no, I, uh, I, I was always, you know, I was always experimenting in my head. I was never acting out. That was the difference. But you know, here I was. I came to the city that never slept. Just turn your microphone towards you, just a tiny bit. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, I, I finally sat down with my dad when I had been through everything and he said, Andy, what is it that you really want to do? And I said, you know, I think I want to go into the NASA program. Hmm. I have no, I mean, like no real interest in space, but like, you know, I probably wanted to go on a ride at Disneyland. That was, but you know, I, you know, start kind of puffing things up and thinking big, like, I'm not going to go. Yeah, I'm also fascinated with politics, but, you know, I was thinking about a run for Congress at 26 or 7, but it all seemed within my reach. But even today, and I have to admit it, nothing seems out of my reach. And that can be frightening, too. I'm just a lot more calm
0: than I ever was. And I wouldn't do it. And you're medicated today, correct or no?
1: I am. Yeah. But I'm also so, I'm also, also twice as old. I had a great doctor, my, my one great doctor ever, my only great doctor, who said to me, Andy, you know, in your early, we're in, you're in your early, early 40s now, moving, in, you're a dad. And I got to tell you, having two kids really just keeps you balanced, focused. You're not thinking about your next crazy move. You're thinking about, you know, the next bottle. You're thinking about, you know, the next diaper. Um, But she said, I feel like this bipolar disorder is going to slowly fade. It does fade. I mean, but.
0: But it doesn't completely go away. No,
1: the enthusiasm and the lust and the passion never fades. I don't think so.
0: Is it muted to a degree by the meds that makes you long for the days when when the mania was unmuted?
1: I went through that period, but that's when I was taking mood stabilizers. I don't take mood stabilizers now. And people always say, what do you take? And I always say, "Um, I'd rather not tell you what I take because then you'll think because I'm doing well and things seem to be steady that that's what you should take. But I don't mind. I mean, right now I only take an anti-anxiety med. One, that's it. Yeah. I mean he used to take 14 meds a day he used to take 66 pills a day.
0: Oh, that's crazy. And I mean that in the <laughs> most defensive crazy. Way. But
1: but that but those are the days of doctors not knowing yeah. really what to do. They'd just say, "Well, you know, try this, try this, and oh, if you have side effects, take these four other drugs." For the side effects I've had that. Yeah, that's
0: fun. I need to find a new shrink.
1: But uh but then, you know, the book is called Lecture Boy because when I said to my doctor, "Not one of these meds is doing anything for me," I said, "How about ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, electroshock therapy, or as the Brits call it, it's my favorite, electric shock therapy." I don't have, I can't do a good British accent, so. Um, so I, she said to me, Andy, that's insane. Um, you're too sensitive to meds. You're going to be very sensitive to ECT. And then I was still high as a kite. When I say high as a kite, I say, I mean, really manic. I was thinking. I know, but it's so glamorous. Ernest Hemingway had ECT.
0: Francis Fisher.
1: Francis Farmer. A farmer. Had ECT. Francis Fisher's
0: an ex. But but, I mean, right.
1: But then I also said to myself, you know what? I'm so sick of people saying, Andy, get better, you know, start running again. And, uh, I mean, start, you know, start working out again and pull yourself together, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. So I said, fuck it. Fine. I'm going to pick the most barbaric treatment that you think there is, ECT. I'm going to be shocked. I'm going to have 200 volts sent to my brain. And if I don't get better, it's your fault. I mean, at least I can say I've tried everything. Um, And of course, I was sent to see the ECT specialist who said, after four minutes, you're the perfect candidate for ECT. Yeah, of course, because you make (laughs) $4,000 and my insurance company pays you and your best friend is the anesthesiologist. So uh, I had 19 treatments.
0: And did it do anything?
1: Um, Flattened me was no more mania. Uh, was it barbaric? No, I don't remember it. Um, terrible side effects to those who will say, I can't believe that you still endorse ECT. I don't endorse ECT. I mean, it's a personal choice. I don't think having, you know, you know, abortion is a personal choice too. I don't think having ECT is, uh, I wish I could have avoided it, but that's what was left for me.
0: And what were the side effects?
1: Um, I didn't know my name. (laughs) Uh, When my sister came into the hospital room, I told my parents to ask the nurse to leave. Horrible memory loss. Short-term, long-term. Confusion. And people always say, people always complain. Even people who really are, have had experiences with ECT, they always forget to leave out. That it's not just the memory loss. It's the absolute confusion. It's like, is my name Andy Berman and do I live on this planet? Like leaning, uh, reaching for a telephone and looking at the keypad and just saying to my dad, who was, was probably my best caregiver. What are all those numbers? What do I do with those? He said, well, I mean, he, he was shocked pun intended, not intended. I don't know. Take your choice. Uh, at some of the questions I had about the world around me, which now looked totally different. I walked into my apartment after like my fifth or sixth treatment because my first four were in hospital and I would tell my father oh my god I love this apartment and this guy has a lot of the same things <laughs> as me and I actually have a, I have a friend who underwent ECT underwent who uh, when she got all the bills in the mail like six months later she went to the hospital and she said I just want to tell you something you must have sent these to the wrong person because I've never had ECT so your memory is shot but there's this very odd confusion which is really not very pleasant.
0: Does your obviously your memory comes back? Your
1: memory comes back but it's it's uh, it's a good 18 months or 2 years.
0: And does it come back fully? Cuz I've heard some people no, it doesn't, doesn't come mine back. Mine has
1: not come back fully. I mean, I I remember when I got married and um, my ex-wife said to me was well, she telling me about her favorite movie? And I said I do not think I've ever seen that movie. She's like Andy, there's no way you've never, there's no way you've missed this movie. I said, I don't think I've seen it. It was Saturday Night Fever. I mean, okay. Awesome movie. Awesome movie. And she put it on, and right away I said, yep, I've seen it. But just a lot of missing pieces. It's not my favorite subject to talk about ECT, so if you want to push me on it, push me on it. No, I I'm, thought I was going to die. I mean, I, I was like, oh my God. I mean, I uh, you know i remember there were 12 residents watching they were about to put me under and i was thinking am i going to am I, is this the end of my life are you going to kill me here and the doctor thought that was fun everyone thought that every whatever i said they thought was funny they said is there anything else that you need or i said yeah and i'm still light something quick but by that time they've got the the brevotal in your arm um which is the uh, the the anesthetic and, you know, you're asked to count backwards from 10 to zero and you get to 90. nine, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nine. <laughs> you get to nine, maybe if you're lucky. But then they rolled me out and I had no, I thought I was, I thought I was the civil war. I woke up in an, in a recovery room with like 20 people just moaning. So I thought I was on the battlefield. <laughs> I had no oh idea my where I was. God. Yeah. Fun.
0: Do you regret having done it?
1: Uh, would not do it today ever because ever.
0: meds are better
1: meds are better there are better meds is that the same thing yeah um, but um, it's done differently today but there are more ECT treatments given every day than there are appendectomies yeah I would have preferred to have my appendix taken out 19 times <laughs> but it probably would have been cheaper. Um.
0: So it sounds like childhood was fairly uneventful in terms of, uh, of trauma. Oh, you know, this is a, a question I had, and I, I apologize if this is uh, feels like I'm lumping you into a cliche, but the decision to um, get into prostitution, had you ever experienced any kind of uh, sexual trauma as a child?
1: No, but most... Most, um, at least most men and women I met who were quote, I love this term. I don't, I mean, I'm not, Mm -hmm. I've never said, I've never said it before out loud. Sex workers, Mm -hmm. um, had been abused sexually, maybe 50, 60%. I don't know what the number is, Okay, but very high,
0: very high, but no. So it was more of a curiosity and and maybe power. It was,
1: it was, yeah, it was about, it was, it was about curiosity. Yeah. Um, did
0: you find any aspect of it fulfilling? Uh, no,
1: I actually, I was frightened by it. I had some, I had one, you have to have your one bad experience, which was, uh, well, I had many bad experiences. The one where I thought my life was at risk, which was being tied up by a couple, a man and a woman, um, at a hotel, being tied naked to a bathroom door knob and um on the TV they um put some cartoons, like it was, I remember it was Looney Tunes cartoons and I just kept hearing it over and over and over and over. And they paid me three hundred dollars. And they went out for the night. They came back like two hours later. And that's how they got off. That's
0: I guess I guess they did something later. Uh, I mean <laughs> But they didn't touch you or No, they didn't touch me. And so the fear was <laughs> that they weren't gonna come back? Well or? the
1: fear was that they were not gonna come back ever. And I was gonna be naked and I was gonna starve to death. And I was and the and Bugs Bunny was just gonna be
0: on TV all day long. And what was the premise that you had agreed to have your hand bound to the doorknob?
1: Uh, they said, uh, will you let us do anything to you? And I said, as long as it doesn't hurt, I didn't realize how scarred I'd be emotionally and how quickly I'd run through the lobby of the hotel and decided I would never do that again.
0: Cause you, next time I knew I'd be killed. Do you, do you have flashbacks or bad uh, dreams about that today? no I, no no any other uh moments well let me ask you this what uh, uh well I'm, I'm panicking right now why <sighs>
1: uh, I don't know um, am I making you nervous? No, no, no. To retelling, I don't, I don't, I, I bury that in the book. Yeah. People don't ask too many questions about my sexual promiscuity or my interest in it. And what scares me the most is how often I put myself at risk in every way. But yeah. that, but that's in the past or is
0: that something you still struggle with? No, it's in the past, but I am lucky to have survived it. Yeah i'm sorry i'm sorry that uh that you experience that i think a lot of people that have never experienced uh sexual trauma they think it it the worst part is the event itself and they don't realize often the worst part of it are the ongoing ripples mm-hmm. many times years after it's been buried um is that something you're comfortable uh talking about, or is there anything to talk about uh with the 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 ripples uh for you yeah i mean i i i, I chose
1: um it was a choice that I made it wasn't you know pulled into it but um the idea of I'm being, stop you there for one second okay
0: you didn't choose to have those people leave you like that
1: no but I chose to put myself in situations that were very dangerous I mean I was picked up at a strip club one night by a seemingly nice guy who ended up being a psychiatrist whose family was in um, Nantucket for the weekend and here I was this 23 year old and He wanted uh, me to uh, wear a gas mask, and I thought, "Oh God!" And and he's going to kill me, and I'm going to end up in a hefty bag um, in in the garbage room where we're thrown down the chute. Twist tie or pull tie? Um, probably uh, pull tie. Pull tie. Okay. Pull tie. So classy yeah i can't really look at a garbage bag i mean <laughs> i can't look at a psychiatrist i mean <laughs> this is a pretty well known psychiatrist and this was his idea of fun yeah. hmm. and i'm
0: sorry i'm 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 interjecting jokes in here i just get the I feeling
1: love, the jokes I, are good okay
0: i get J- the feeling the jokes helped me through. with you that it's okay yeah he he
1: uh yeah and he became a regular too so um i guess the question i would like to ask you, Andy, is (laughs) what were you looking for?
0: What did you think was going to happen? You know, before before we get to that, I just want to say to you, you are not to blame. Just because you wanted to do those things didn't give the people the right to do that. You know, just because a woman walks down a dark alley doesn't mean that her being raped that she's complicit in her being raped and and I I feel like you're doing that to yourself
1: I I agree with that but if you stand on stage naked and someone says here's $300 will you come home with me and you say yes you basically know you're not going home to do flower arranging
0: but there's a difference between that still doesn't give anybody the right that's
1: still, t- to scare you, frighten you.
0: Yes, and and that's still... While it might have been naive on your part, mm-hmm. that in no way makes you complicit in what happened. No, I, I, I agree. To you. And I have to tell you that I... Because I, I still I, feel like you're blaming yourself.
1: Maybe. I, um... You know, I've never met anybody with bipolar disorder who didn't, who wasn't able to talk about their hypersexuality or about uh, sexual issues in their life, which shamed them. I mean, the the first woman who ever responded to my website wrote to me and said, you know, not only have I looked at your website, but I've read your book and, you know, I was gang raped from the time she said, you know, I was from when I was 14 to 17 and
0: I just thought it was my fault. Back up and say that again. She, she was gang raped from 14 to 17 and said that that, that it was her fault. She always thought it was her fault. Yeah,
1: Yeah. Um, but at the same time that she thought it was her fault, it was something that she enjoyed. At least that's what she thought at the time it was happening. I felt the
0: same way too. Um, well, you know, I say this oftentimes, our body and our soul can experience two completely different things at the same time. Our soul can be saying, I I don't like this. This feels weird. I feel degraded. And our body be- can be saying, this is super exciting. Right. This and is- and I, I,
1: I know a professor at, uh, at Georgetown who's bipolar um, and uh, just a great reputation and uh, not treated and you know i you know her what goes on in her life goes beyond sexually promiscuous you cannot believe that a, a professor is doing what she's doing at night it's very odd and
0: she has bipolar yes yeah. yeah and how do you know her
1: she read my book wrote okay. to me and said um, i'd love to meet you I, I always end up meeting too many people i think it's the best part of being open about your Well, yeah, I mean, I have to say, I mean, people originally said, wow, you know, that book is really disgusting and it's... Fuck them. Well, I had never read a book written by a male about bipolar disorder. I had read William Styron's book, Darkness Visible. I had read Kay Jamison's book um, on bipolar disorder. Uh, But I kept... kept, Like, when I read Kay Jamison's book, uh, I thought well, that's not the bipolar thing I have. I must have some other weird thing that has all these weird elements of sexual addiction, uh, overspending, uh, uh, just this constant need to be moving fast. I mean, I'd get, I'd hail a cab at 81st and Broadway at two in the morning and I'd say, you know, take me to JFK and I'd watch the, the little ticker to see what the next flight was. And if it said Vienna that's where I went. Didn't matter. And I remember calling my parents once and, uh, it was exactly at Thanksgiving. So God. And, uh, they said, um, are are you getting closer? Because you're supposed to be in Canada. You're supposed to be at your uncle's house for Thanksgiving. And I remember crying for the first time and saying, I'm lost. I'm totally lost. I, I, and they were like, how far are you thinking, you know, maybe New Jersey. I would say, "No, I'd say like you know, Westchester." I'd say, um, Vienna." oh my God, so far away." But you know that's the thing about this illness. sometimes you're just so you're so close to reality, and then you're so far away from reality at the same time because your goal is to like really live and to really feel it and to really
0: just live it really passionately like life is a buffet and you're going to try everything.
1: Yeah, and then you realize, wait a second, I'm so lost and no one even really cares because their thanksgiving is going to go on and I'm stuck at an airport in Vienna and you know, the only thing I have is money because I'm in this counterfeiting business. I'm sweating just thinking about that. And, um, you know, you do get to that. Am I going to live or am I going to die? And But you also think if I don't live really hard, like there's no reason ever to die. I got to wait until I'm done living hard. I think right now I'm done living
0: hard. And is life enjoyable without living hard?
1: Living hard that way, yeah. No one can live that hard that long. But it was exciting, the living hard. It was right. exciting, but there are other ways to live hard um, that don't get you into trouble.
0: Like, um,
1: being um, what did you call it before? A shit starter. Shit starter. Being yeah. a shit starter. Just saying anything. You know, standing online at CVS and realizing that you're the 11th person, it's going to take six years to get what you need, and you just start talking loud, and you just start. Well, if there's seven people, but I'm going to run this pharmacy. So I walk up. I say, "Can you please hold my place in line? Not that it matters." I say, "Excuse me. Can I speak to the pharmacist?" Yes, the pharmacist. I'm sorry, we're just understaffed. I said, I know, but what are you guys all doing? It's like 10.47 at night. They're like, you could process 11 of us. Here's how you can do it, you know? And I show them how to do it, and they're like, okay, we'll bring that person from consultation over here to check out. I'm like, you guys, you could be done in 12 minutes. Done. <laughs> so there's a lot of taking over and taking control and realizing that actually you can think this stuff through. But at the same time, you know, there's that's not shit starting. I mean, you know there's also um being inappropriate but appropriately inappropriate it's a really fine line yeah i mean i wrote to someone this weekend i wrote someone i just met um uh, i said i'm sorry i didn't uh i wasn't in touch but i was really busy this weekend and um she wrote back well what were you so busy with? I said, well, please don't tell anybody, but I found the cure for cancer. <laughs> okay. And she said, when is it going to be announced? I said, well, I'm doing it really low key. I'm going to have, uh, the, um, the head of the school of my kid's school, just to put it in the weekly newsletter on Monday. Like, I don't want a big newspaper. I just real low key. Andy Berman found the cure for cancer. So, um, I don't know. Uh, it's
0: sometimes hard. Um, well, that sounds innocuous to... enough and 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 funny. But do you? Well, you're you're shaking your head like that's not innocuous. Right? Oh, but it
1: can, it, that's innocuous. It is innocuous. But I can yeah. go a couple of steps further. Okay. Yeah,
0: because yeah. yeah, the thing in line at the pharmacy sounds right on the edge. Like. This guy just needs to surrender to the fact that sometimes there's lines and he doesn't No, there need, will not be lines. And he just in my world. need to try to control there everything. Not,
1: there will not be lines. There will not be people beeping when they when you're not driving fast enough for them. That's me. I get out of the car and I say, "Excuse me, were you beeping at me for what reason? Why? What, you know, why were you beeping?" It's not going to help.
0: Talk about um this could be me... Uh, misinterpreting it but uh I'm going to take a wild guess that that you struggle with control issues or no what kind of control I don't I mean, know so many being, all different kinds of control for instance uh, being like the thing in the line if i if i saw somebody do what you did and i was in the line i'd uh, you know lean back to my wife behind me and said i oh, a fucking control freak no
1: no 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 I, I i get everyone onto
0: my side
1: like hmm yes you know we're gonna take over i'm smart that way i'm like you guys come on we can do it we can do it and guess what and it never back and
0: it never backfires on you where the person like well uh, when they sur- finally get up to the front they're like uh, you know they're not that friendly to me yeah but um no you, you've got to make sure that everyone's on your side are there instances where you just um surrender to a moment and don't try to let everybody know what they're doing wrong Um, Or is that very hard for you?
1: I don't think I do that ever. No,
0: no, I have to let people know. You have to let people know. I have to let people. Well, see that that that, to me that's my definition, and I'm a control freak too. That's your definition of of being a control freak. Is wanting everybody to know what they're how they could improve what it is that they're. That they're doing. When I play hockey, I just need to shut the fuck up. You know, I'm constantly telling the person, you know, when you go into the corner, you you know, you should uh, look over your shoulder because you know the guy at the point. Oftentimes he's he's open. These guys aren't really uh, right. uh, covering us at the at the point, and then we can get a shot from there. And then you just go to the net and. And sometimes I'll, I'll I'll hear myself and go, what do What are you afraid of? So what if this guy doesn't pass it up to the point? So then your team scores two less goals. It doesn't mean your fucking life is over. Right. So I just recognize uh, a little bit of of me. I, I actually don't have the balls to do what you did at at CVS. Oh, that's that's minor. You yeah. know what I mean. What What have we uh, not talked about yet that that you would like to talk about?
1: Or well, how about what have we not talked about that you would not like to talk about? Those are the best things to talk about. Okay. I would not like to talk about, uh, where I'm going to be at the moment I die. That terrifies you. Yeah. I want to know exactly that I'm going to be safe and comfortable and, well medicated for that event and definitely i want to make sure that if i do die i definitely am dead and i'm just not buried that would be terrible because i wouldn't get out i would classify that as a terrific oversight (laughs) being buried dead you know this is i've never discussed this but my dad died um And please don't say what everyone else always says, which is like, oh, I'm so sorry. My dad died two years ago. How about this? Awesome. (laughs) Awesome. My dad was, my dad is. Wait, wait, just just say it again. My dad died two years ago. Finally. Finally. (laughs) That's (laughs) the perfect I love it. But he he was amazing. He, he, uh, He would totally get this. He loved Electro Boy, by the way. My mother was like, oh, my God, that book is disgusting. It's pornography. It's a lie. It's not true. It's terrible. And I was like, really? Okay. Uh, she said, your father and I want to see your therapist to discuss this. So we went in and sat down and she said, so um, what did you think of the book? And my dad said, I loved it. Such a great account of Andy's battle with bipolar disorder. You know, you know, and here he is discounting like the counterfeiting and the cock sucking and the, and the stripping and the girlfriends and the boyfriends and the, you know, the crap, you know, that's just the most exhausting, you know, 15 years of my life. And then the therapist says to my mom, and, and what did you think about a lecture boy? And she said, I thought it was a disgusting book. And, and she said, how? She goes, I cannot believe that my son was stripping in seedy Times Square basements and I couldn't even get him to dance At his own bar mitzvah. And then I figured, you know what? I can die now. Because she has just said it all. Now I get it. Now I get it. And that's kind of where she is now still, I'm sure. Is she a control freak? Oh, my God. She sounds like a control freak. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I'm very kind to my parents in this book. Very. But we had another question. Oh, Oh, my
0: dad, when he died? Yeah. Finally, um, finally, finally, um, I like to call it the years your dad left us alone. Yeah, exactly. When he finally fucking went away. Yes. Uh, the big shut up. <laughs> exactly. Well,
1: he died and, uh, he had emphysema. So he was sick for two years, but he had been a big athlete and, you know, he didn't realize he had emphysema. He had stopped smoking probably at 50. Um, but he was a really funny guy, you know, a little touch of, a little touch of mental illness in the family. Uh, but he, you know, he was your typical wild and crazy guy, but he, uh, he, we knew he knew it was his time. I mean, we knew. So, um, he died at, or he started dying at four thirty on a Saturday morning. Um, and he fell. Um, probably because he lost his balance or it wasn't breathing uh, and I remember they kind of came to get him. He wasn't dead, uh, to bring him to the hospital. And my mother and I were just together in their bedroom and there was blood on the carpet. This was kind of like our absolute, like most neurotic Jewish moment where I'm like, oh, mom, there's blood on the carpet. <laughs> my mom's like get something bubbly and get some kosher salt. And, and like, here we were trying to get the blood out. My dad was on his way to the hospital and then just gone. But then I remember I had to go, um, I had to go identify his body. And this was very odd for me because I remember the, the, when I went to the funeral home, they asked me like 12 questions and my aunt and uncle were with me and they knew me very well. And they knew that I would be outgoing, aggressive, funny. And they asked me all kinds of, crazy questions. Like, well, you know, um, what was his mother's maiden name? No, oh, that was a normal question. Um, um, was your father, um, any part of him, native American? You know, that was such a good line for me to make a joke. And I, <laughs> I said, no, you know, I just said, <laughs> no, you know, answered all the questions. They said, okay, we're going to bring you in to see your d- dad so you can identify that that's him. <laughs> I, uh, just like laying there with his mouth open, you know, it's like, what would dad say? My dad would be like, Oh my God, do I look like Mount Tong like this? Like, <laughs> <laughs> he looked so much like Mount Tong, And I was just like, Oh my God. And then I really believed that people never die. You know, I was sure that he was, I'm still, still sure that he's alive, but, um, he looked comfortable. I wish I could look that comfortable when I was dead. He looked great. Really good. Looked better than he did the day before. Um,
0: so, keep going anything else you'd like to uh to share with us where do where do you feel like you're you're at today do you feel like you're in a in a good space um, I feel like I'm in a good space um, do you feel like you're managing uh, your bipolar disorder
1: oh absolutely I feel like you know I, feel like I'm managing my bipolar disorder. I don't feel like I have the greatest luck in the world. I mean, um, working on a new book, uh, which is a sequel to Electro Boy. Um, mm-hmm. I like when people say they're working on a new book. Uh, the truth would be, I have not written a fucking page. But it doesn't mean it's not all there. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I wrote Electro Boy in about six minutes, uh, I had 18 months to write it, uh, it's
0: 288 pages. I have th- to say it's the perfect uh, thickness for a book. It's not intimidating, but it's not uh, like oh, this guy could have put more effort into it. <laughs> <laughs> this guy could have written more. Uh, and I apologize that I didn't read this before you came. Oh, it's good that you uh, didn't. In. Uh, the pa- The pile of books that I get sent to me, um, not that the show was like wildly popular, yeah. or, but uh, it's uh, it's intimidating. And so I kind of decide, I'm not going to read any of them.
1: That's what literary agents do. That's great. They get, lots of, <laughs> they get lots of manuscripts, and they just say to their assistant, just take the top three and throw the other 997 in the garbage, please. And uh, I'm, I'm sure there must be like, what do they call that? The slush pile. I'm sure there must be yes. like one great bestseller that came from the slush pile. Mine did
0: not. Have you ever read, I don't forget which magazine is, but they do excerpts from the slush pile. pile? No. Oh my God. Good stuff. It'll be like a paragraph of the most awkwardly written, terrible cliche. Mm. You know, I
1: get like five mental health memoirs a week. Okay. So, you know, and I know like, I know from the first paragraph how it's going to go. And I've, I've one good one in 12 years.
0: I enjoy most of the ones I read. It's just uh you got to gear up to to read for conversing. Uh I'm I'm okay with that. I don't get burnt out by conversing, but I do get um burnt out on on reading memoirs and I really get burnt out on ones where where people are think they've discovered the one all fits all solution for living that that I run I turn around and leave. Fucking rubber tire marks. So you, see, for, you must hate self-help books. Most of them, yeah, ninety you know. percent of them. I think so, I think some are good, but the ones I think a lot of them are written by megalomaniacs um, who just have a, a Napoleon complex.
1: Well, but they, right, they take themselves very seriously. Very seriously. They all, they all know everything. You know, whether the subject is mindfulness, which I've yet to figure out exactly what that is, but I'm working on it. Not mindfulness, but figuring out what mindfulness is. Um,
0: Eckhart Tolle, A yes. New Earth, is a fantastic book. I mention it all the time on this podcast. Okay, I'm gonna. It, it, it definitely helped me become more mindful and to recognize the cycles of negative thinking and self judgment that that I go through. So back to your question of, is there anything that you've left
1: out or something? You used the word space and I got lost on that word. Lost in space. you like lost in space. I love lost in space. That's your era, right?
0: It is. I was never a big fan.
1: I was. I wanted to be on that spaceship so badly and not on this earth.
0: I relate to that. I relate to that.
1: Um, I liked everybody on that show. Dr. Smith i wanted
0: to Penny be in the, robinson
1: i wanted to be in robinson. the brady bunch oh me too why did you like the brady bunch
0: no uh, because i wanted to see marcia naked really oh yeah really it's funny. oh yeah i had the biggest crush on her and you know i was a hypersexual little kid i was not, i i liked jan and no one liked jan i liked jan jan was cute but she was no marcia Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. That's what Jan's head, headstone's gonna say. Jan was cute, but she was no Marsha. Exactly. My
1: dad wanted his headstone to say he loved egg rolls. Um anything you've left out? Uh yeah. I was fascinated with Alice and Sam's relationship on Brady Bunch. The Brady Bunch. Because Alice we I knew at that point. She was she was a lesbian, right?
0: I thought. I think until she started dating Sam, I think you you, you didn't, I didn't even th- think of her as sexual. I didn't think they had sex ever. Yeah,
1: they brought, maybe they went out on dates or he yeah. brought some meat over, <laughs> and <laughs> she tenderized it. I don't know. <laughs> uh, just... I, but uh, I miss them. I mean, I, <laughs> I I I escaped into that that world because I. I I was like oh god this family seems better than mine i never really thought about the fact you know here's the story you know yeah. i never realized they were divorced
0: that they had it was a blended family yeah i didn't yeah. i didn't know that you were not paying attention i, I didn't it was pretty obvious i was right, more interested right, actually i was more interested in the architecture
1: of the house i love the steps fantastic house yeah that house is somewhere like yeah
0: in Sherman oaks probably uh, Andy, if people want to uh, tweet to you, you are at Electro Boy? No,
1: if people want to tweet to me, yeah, which they should do gently, and like I don't like a lot of people tweeting at once. Mm-hmm. I don't want all that tweeting on my body. Now, at electroboy USA, oh, okay, which makes me seem so important, but I get really interesting tweets. I bet. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Scared. And is there a website? There is. Guess what that is? Electroboy.com. Electra-boy. Can you believe that? I don't
0: know how you came up with of it. Speaking the,
1: about the dot in, in dot .com, I lost the um, period on my keyboard. Mm-hmm. There's a joke in there somewhere. Oh, well, there wasn't a joke when I took it back is to Best ke- Buy, because they said, sorry.
0: Is your keyboard not eating enough? <laughs> it's not getting its period it's anymore?
1: its period. But I wish it was missing just for that day, like, you know, the because I wouldn't have had to use it. But mm-hmm. I need, you need the period. Mm-hmm. You need to stop. You need to stop, you know, especially if you're doing anything. I
0: mean, Unless you're E.E. E. Cummings. Then you don't need the shift or the period. You don't need the shift. I, I, I type E.E. E. Cummings style. But
1: did E.E. E. Cummings not use periods? I
0: don't know. Most poets, yeah, yeah, maybe they throw in at the end. But I think poets can get away without using a period. I like anywhere. to write a poem with just one big period on the page. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Andy, thank you. Uh,
1: was there something else you wanted to say? Well, I actually want to stay, sleep over if I could. <laughs> is that possible? Yeah, you, you
0: have, you really were in prison because this is one shitty hotel oh, right this here. This is one very. This is a cell, basically. It's a cell without windows. Yeah. This is solitary. Yeah. Andy Berman, thank you so much. Thank you so much. <laughs> many many thanks to uh to Andy. Uh yeah, be sure to pick up his uh his book Electro Boy. Um before we get to some surveys, I want to give some love to our sponsor howl.fm. For those of you that don't know about howl.fm, uh, uh if you are into podcasts, it's kind of like the Netflix for podcasts and it truly is the best bargain that that there is around. It's uh it's 4.99 a month and uh you get access to uh exclusive content on your iPhone your Android phone and on the web Uh, like I said for only $4.99 a month Uh, it's a brand new app and it's a website and uh, it's with with how premium you get exclusive access to a shitload of things you get uh, dozens of original miniseries you get audio documentaries you get amazing comedy albums by the the best and most innovative stand-up comedians working today um, and new episodes are released every week you get uh, podcast archives from amazing shows like WTF uh, with Mark Marin um, all the earwolf shows which include comedy bang Bang or how did this get made? And the Howell uh, original miniseries are really cool. There's one that I've talked about a couple of times called Something Cool, which is an audio documentary hosted by uh, Lorraine Newman, and they focus on the unheralded careers of different actors uh, throughout time. And uh, it's a really cool in-depth uh, audio documentary. So, so check it out. Um, oh, there's also uh, a a show that uh, Howell carries uh, called Super Ego Forgotten Classics. If you've never heard uh Super Ego. It's too hard to even describe. Just go check it out. It's the best improvisers working uh today. Anyway, you get all of this stuff for 4.99 a month and with the promo code mental, you get a full month of a free trial. So to redeem your promo code, first you have to make sure you create your uh account on the web at howl.fm. And like I said, enter uh the the code mental at checkout. Once again, that's Howl.fm. That's H-O-W-L.fm and use the promo code MENTAL for a one-month free trial of Howl Premium. Um, I am still enjoying my cornucopia of happy and awfulsome moments that you guys shared on my birthday. Uh, I can't tell you how happy it makes me to um, to be able to adjust how light the surveys are by injecting uh these into it because it's probably the the hardest ones for me to find ones that i want to read on the air for for instance the shame and secret surveys i'm probably 150 um survey responses behind on even catching up with that one whereas uh with the happy moments and the sh- and the uh uh awful some moments. Uh, I'm usually uh, wishing that I had more every week. And so that's a long way of me saying, uh, with the exception of, I think, two shame and secret surveys I'm reading, uh, They uh, and and one uh, email. Actually, the email is an awful some moment. Oh my God, Paul, shut up. Shut your fucking mouth. Go to the butcher and have your tongue cut out and get strung up. Go to Ciudad Juarez, have your tongue pulled out and made into one of those neckties. Is that what's that called? The Colombian necktie? I might be overreacting, but oh, I just hate that feeling I get when I, I, when I'm making a mistake. It's so stupid. It's so stupid. I know I'm hard on myself. You don't have to email me to tell me that. It's just when it comes up, it's so visceral because I'm convinced that you all are going to turn the podcast off and never listen again. Oh, I'm crazy. All right. This is a happy moment filled out by a guy. I don't know how you pronounce it. OMG. Oh, dummy. <laughs> There's a nice five-second gap between beating myself up and then beating myself up again. OMG, LOL. I didn't get it at first. Uh, very brief happy moment. When I'm crying alone and my cat climbs on me and licks my tears, then jumps down and dry heaves. <laughs> Always cheers me up. That is fantastic. This is a, hold on, sip of tea. Those of you with misophonia, step away for a second. All right, there we go. Uh, this is a happy moment filled out by Aurora and uh she writes due to my anxiety I couldn't go to my regular 500 plus student high student high school graduation however i'm inuit and aboriginal uh i'm inuit and aboriginal students in my school uh, board have the option of attending a graduation ceremony based on our traditions and culture, so I still got to celebrate and that alone is awesome. When I got there, they announced that they had a special guest speaker, Theo Fleury, one of my idols. For those of you that don't know, Theo Fleury was an amazing hockey player in the uh, 80s and 90s. Um, Uh, Anyway, uh, that night, I got to experience winning an award. Oh, and Theo also uh, suffers from uh, mental illness, and he was sexually abused as a child. Uh, That night, I got to experience winning an award for overcoming adversity, uh, my mental illness, that was presented by my idol, and I also got to talk with him about some of my struggles to which he replied, you're not alone. Awesome. Thank you, Aurora. And uh, Theo, if you ever find yourself in L.A., Would love to interview you. This uh, is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself mom of two. She is, oh, I just dropped all the surveys. Another mistake. Oh my God. Herbert, come help me. It's all gone to pot. She is, Ivy actually got up and left. This is. Uh, she is straight. She's in her 40s. She was raised in a slightly dis- dysfunctional environment. She's never been sexually abused. She's never been emotionally abused. Her darkest thoughts. When I am depressed, I will wish that I never had kids. I have a fantasy world where I'm able to be the person I was born to be because I never had kids that hold me back from spending my time the way I wish I could darkest secrets. After my second child was born, I began regularly drinking too much, a bottle of wine about four nights a week. I kept the drinking a secret from my husband. I have a hard time remembering the exact progression of my drinking before that time. Because my dad is a recovering alcoholic, I mostly stayed away from alcohol in high school and college. It was after I met my husband's family, which contained some alcoholics, but mostly regular social drinkers, that I discovered the joys of daily drinking. (laughs) The joys of daily drinking. What an awesome phrase. I developed a habit of maybe two beers or two glasses of wine a night for many years, but it progressed over time with breaks for my two pregnancies. When it was at its worst, I would promise myself I would stop and then be unable to. I also have a history of compulsive eating and bulimia. I went back to a therapist I had worked with on my eating disorder and told her about my drinking problem. She felt I was self-medicating for my anxiety and suggested I see a psychiatrist. I tried Zoloft for a while but did not notice a change, so I went off it. By the way, uh, a lot of times when you're uh, getting fucked up, it's really hard for meds to do their job. Just so you know. Um, So I went off it. I found an online support group that consisted of moms a lot like myself, super high functioning young kids and drinking to deal with the stress. I was able to stop drinking for many months. Then the holidays came and I drank in secret at my in-laws house. When we returned from that trip, I found a support group and started following the program of the group. I told my husband everything that had been going on. Uh, He is very supportive. I did not drink for a few years. Recently, however, I've been struggling again and I haven't told anyone. One problem is I have trouble getting in the mood for sex unless I drink and I feel terrible about that. You should not, by the way. You should not. Um, I adore my husband. He never pressures me to have sex if I don't want to, but I know he would like more. We probably have sex just twice a month, and lately it has been after I've been secretly drinking. The deal I've made with myself is that I will continue not to drink most of the time, but will drink once or twice a month in order to have sex, or if I'm going out with friends and want to have fun. Whenever I drink, I really enjoy it enjoy how it loosens me up and makes me more open uh, makes me open to more experiences. It can be hard for me to relax and let loose without alcohol. However, I can see how I am thinking about drinking more and more and that my plan to drink a couple of times a month will quickly lead to more. Doing it in secret makes me feel ashamed. I'm usually very, very depressed the next day after I drink. I recently started writing in a journal every day. Two nights ago, I drank a bottle of wine. I felt like complete shit in the morning. I wrote about how sick I am of it and how much I hate myself for doing that and really let loose in the journal. It felt extremely cleansing. I am committing again to not drinking. It can be challenging for high-bottom alcoholics like myself to recognize we need to quit. Uh, There are really intense stories in support groups of really low bottoms. I can easily feel like I don't belong. I honestly... Don't know if I'm an alcoholic, but I don't think it matters. I always drink more than I plan to, and I always get depressed. Just because I've never blacked out or lost anything because of drinking doesn't mean that I couldn't eventually. So my drinking and my need to drink to have sex are my deepest, darkest secrets. I'm hoping to explore other ways to get myself more excited about sex. I don't ever not enjoy it while it's happening. It's just getting myself in the mood that is challenging. But there are resources for everything, and I'm going to be looking into resources for this issue. You know, my, my first thought when I, when I read this was, um, that instead of drinking to have sex, how about just not having sex and going to marriage counseling with your husband and exploring those feelings uh, as they come up? And I I have gone through periods of that too, where I, once I'm in the groove of having sex, it it feels good, but um, almost like jumping into a into a pool. It would um, I would. I would find myself shying away from it, and uh, I'm sure the the reason that I had that fear of it uh, was probably different than yours. But um, maybe it's not. And whatever the reason is, um, if there is a reason, it, it you owe it to yourself and you owe it to your husband to um, to work on that because you should um, you you deserve to, to enjoy it when you have sex and not have it feel like a chore. I mean, that's my opinion. Um, and about the drinking, uh, I was a high-bottom drunk as well. And I also saw the writing on the wall that I would have begun to lose things. And um, really, I I felt like I had lost my soul. And it sounds to me like that's the place that you're in right now where you you feel like you're betraying who you really are inside. And that, to me, is a big enough of a bottom to go back and, and get get help. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, I have a couple of male friends that I sometimes fantasize about having sex with. In the fantasy, we find ourselves unexpectedly alone and can't resist each other. There is the risk of being caught by our spouses. Sharing it makes me feel kind of turned on. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I wish my husband and I could talk more openly about sex. See, that's why I think going to marriage counseling would be so good. It can really help get the conversation rolling. Uh, we don't talk about it more uh, because excuse me, it embarrasses him and I don't like to make him feel uncomfortable. Well, you know, part of intimacy is having uncomfortable conversations. That's a huge part of intimacy. Uh, I also wish I could tell him that I've been drinking again, but I am too ashamed. Again, in, in joint counseling, that might be a good place to, uh, to bring that up. What, if anything, do you wish for? My younger child came out as gender fluid earlier this year. They are assigned male at birth, but usually dress and present like a girl. I don't think they are transgender, but I am not sure yet. They are eight years old. I wish for a world that will be safe for my child. I hope people's acceptance and understanding of trans and gender non-conforming people keeps growing, and it becomes really run-of-the-mill, nothing special, and nothing that I have to explain. I wish... That generally, people would open their hearts and minds to people who are different than they are, and to listen to their experiences. Amen. Amen. And that's so beautiful that you're, that you're there for your kid, and you're already using, uh, you know, the language uh, referring to uh, them as they. Um, have you shared these things with others? As far as my gender-fluid child, I am part of a support group for parents with trans and gender non-conforming kids, and I'm able to talk about my feelings there. I have not shared the other information with anyone. Um, you really sound like a, a, a deep and compassionate person. How do you feel after writing these things down? It feels really great to write this out, although my kids and husband came home halfway through trying to fill it out and I feel really frustrated that it is impossible to complete anything without getting interrupted. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? I want other high bottom potential alcoholics to know that you don't have to ruin your life first to recognize that alcohol has become a problem. If you recognize your problem before anything terrible happens, you can just consider yourself lucky. I want any parents with transgender or gender nonconforming children to please support your children fully and let them be their true selves. Having met many transgender adults at this point, the pain of having parents that don't support them is more than any person should have to bear. At the same time, don't be ashamed if you are confused, sad, angry, shocked, or any other emotion when your child comes out to you. If you thought you had a daughter and now you have a son, or vice versa, you have every right to have feelings about that as well uh, as to go through a grieving process for your child, for the child you thought you had. There are so many great resources for support and information out there, but do whatever you need to do to be strong for your child. They're going to need you on their side. The world is changing for trans people, but not fast enough. Thank you so much for that, and I really hope uh, I hope you and uh, your husband go go to some counseling i bet it would help with a lot of stuff i mean the fact that you're going to a support group uh to support your child um shows that you're you're willing to get into the the solution for things so um sending you some good vibes this is a happy moment filled out by lynn and uh, she writes uh, after going through treatment for that pain and the pain in everyone's ass illness called cancer. I finally got in my own bed on nice clean sheets. I laid my head on my pillow and smelled grapefruit. I slipped my hand in the pillowcase and found the sachet my daughter made in Girl Scouts inside. I thought to myself, I can finally breathe again. That's so sweet. That's so sweet. This is filled out. This is a happy moment filled out by uh, a guy who's been participating in the show since its inception. Um, He goes by the nickname Fruitsy Collins and uh, his happy moment is Uh, He writes, This one is somewhat bittersweet. A few months ago, I came home feeling really sad and bleak about the job I had. It wasn't so much the position that was upsetting me. It was mainly a long-term project that I wasn't really skilled enough to do and was having really slow progress on. I kept coming home in dread that I was eventually going to be fired and desperately wanted to move on from this project to tasks I'm more skilled in. On this particular evening, the hopelessness built up to the point where I started sobbing on my couch. My current regimen of meds had been making me feel better than I had in years, but the stress from this job was starting to make the depression creep back into my life. As I laid on the couch sobbing with increasing intensity, my little dog came up onto the couch with me. I had adopted her from a shelter a few weeks prior, and she had a lot of anxiety from having a difficult life of having to survive in the elements, running away from coyotes and who knows what else. At the time, she was still really scared of everything and was still feeling the need to hide her food and exhibit other types of survival behaviors. As a result, we hadn't really bonded much at that point, but as I was crying, she came up to my lap and stood up to put her feet on my shoulders. She then leaned forward and buried her head near my face. I'm probably projecting about what she was doing, but I felt like I was getting a hug from a friend that knew how hard life could be, who was trying to share some of the pain with me and reassure me that life can get better. I'd like to think that on some level she understood that I was upset and wanted to comfort me, even though I know people often attribute human motives to animals that don't think that the same way. Whatever was going on in her little brain, her actions started to make me feel a lot better. She's since then gotten through a lot of her anxiety and has become very playful, affectionate, and cuddly. I've also been feeling better, uh, though even now I'm still struggling with that same project and occasionally feeling really hopeless about it. Writing about how I was feeling during this event has made me start crying a little, and she's curled up right next to me, trying to get me to rub her belly. I'm really looking forward to spending another 12 or so years with her. Thank you for that, Fruitsy. Uh, This is a happy moment filled out by Ashley, and she writes, About ten years ago, I was in Aruba on a rocky beach. I'd walked there barefoot, and the rocks tore up my feet. I remember looking at the vast ocean and at the round, warm, worn rocks I was walking on and thinking, I am so small compared to all of this. The things I have placed such importance on are bullshit. I told myself to remember everything about that place. The smell of the salt, the warm sun, the pain in my feet, and the amazing view. Luckily, I do. Thank you for that. Sip of tea. Back away from the mic. I might be the most misophonia-friendly podcast out there. I don't know, maybe maybe I'm uh, overestimating my value. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Schrodinger's dog. He is uh, straight in his 20s, raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused. Not sure if he's been uh, physically or emotionally abused. Uh, he He writes, I think I was abused in the form of a, quote, soft kind of neglect. I was raised almost exclusively by my mother. I never had chores and I never had to work for anything I wanted. I could eat and drink whatever I wanted and became overweight. I had a caffeine addiction at 10 years old. I could do my homework whenever I wanted or not do it at all, in which case my mom would usually attempt to finish it for me. When my grades started to slip, there were no repercussions, nor were there consequences for hurting my brother or anything else. Sure, my mom would yell, but I didn't care. Any punishments she would try to put on me... I could talk her out of almost instantly. I think I've always seen her as a bit of a joke of an authority figure. As a result of all this, I never really learned responsibility. My therapist describes this as, quote, old software I need to replace, but I don't feel able. I feel a lot of shame over this. I should just grow up, right? Uh, Any positive experiences uh, with your abusers? Um, and your mom doesn't sound abusive. She just sounds um, not really equipped and, and neglectful. My mom has always been very kind and loving. It makes it hard to accept that what I described above might be neglect. It is neglect. There is absolutely neglect, but it's not coming from a place of, of malice. Uh, darkest thoughts. I fantasize about brutally torturing people who commit crimes against humanity, from bullying someone with a handicap to killing unarmed teen- teenagers who don't have white skin, I'm a bit of a hypocrite in that way. Oh, the first time I read that, I thought you meant that you wanted to kill the the uh handicap bully, the handicap person, or kill the unarmed teenagers, and now I see that you wanted to torture the people who have done that. Okay, uh, darkest secrets. I fell in love. I fall in love with any girl I'm around for long enough. I beat myself up for being physically and emotionally unattractive, even if I never make an advance. I'm then jealous of anyone they become interested in and creep on them by eavesdropping, looking over their shoulders at their phones, and stalking them on social media. I try to make dating profiles, but freeze up at certain parts and never finish them. I did manage to finish one, but the only message I could send to a match uh was about a typo in their profile I have no respect for relationships I've played the nice supportive friend and have gotten three girls to cheat on their boyfriends with me at least emotionally sexual fantasy is most powerful to you I recall past experiences way more than I fantasize when I do fantasize it's pretty soft core I think accidental exposure is what excites me most uh, what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to explain my family as I've come. I want to explain my family as I've come to understand it. To my brother, I see. Uh, my mother's neglect, if if it was that, was probably twice as hard on him, since he had no one to protect him from me. He also still has no idea about our father's other family and probably avoids reasoning about how overly dependent our mother is, just like I did for 20-plus years. What if anything do you wish for, a sense of passion, or, if my brain just can't do that, death before I become homeless? Have you shared these things with others? Some of them. If I haven't, it's out of shame. I feel shame about everything I am, so I share very few parts with anyone. If I'm too ashamed to share my taste in music, I'm probably not going to share the things I've written here. I've shared some things with therapists I've had and a couple very close friends. I've never had a therapist that's really gotten me, so I can't say sharing with them went well. My friends were understanding, though, so I guess that was nice. How do you feel after writing these things down? same as i did before broken but used to being broken you know i don't think you're you're broken at all um i think you just have uh what my therapist calls well-worn grooves of behavior um but they can be they can be changed it just takes action just consistent action of doing different things and it's it it's really hard at first but it can get easier but um i very much uh, identify with um that feeling of um not being able to follow through uh with things so you're not alone you're not alone in that buddy and um sending you some love sending you some love and i i would keep looking for a therapist because i think it's it's going to be i think getting out of that groove we need some type of some help um we need to bring in some reinforcements to sip of tea to get the ball rolling. At least I do. This is an awfulsome moment um, sent by email from our uh, former guest, Roxanne. And um, <clears throat> she writes, happy belated birthday, Paul. Uh, my gift to you is my awfulsome Christmas story. Just like I knew I would, I undermined myself finally into homelessness. I eventually got a part-time job at minimum wage and was sleeping on the grounds of a library where I felt safe. With the weather uh, forecasters calling for El Nino rainstorms, I wasn't looking forward to winter. Then the library left me a note saying they would call the sheriff if I came back. Luckily, I got a pew to sleep on and a new homeless shelter at a church in Highland Park. I had heard stories about how awful shelters can be, so I was wary. I'd only been there a couple of nights when somebody introduced me to another, none other than Maria Bamford. I told her how much I enjoyed her episode on your podcast. Um, she had brought a bunch of comedians to do a show for us, and sure enough. They took to the altar and put on a fabulous show for a scraggly bunch of homeless people. A lot of the humor was highly inappropriate for a church and made for the most memorable Christmas of my life. Still smiling. some. And, uh... And then she also, in a follow-up, said, uh, If I left you with the wrong impression, I'm sorry. I'm not struggling. I have faced the biggest fear in life and discovered it no longer has power over me. My heart is light and joyful, and most complete strangers are not only safe, they are incredibly kind and loving. Somehow I am able to register slash detect love question mark from folks now. 2016 is going to be a wonderful year. Beautiful beautiful. That is a survivor. If you haven't listened to Roxanne's episode, um, it is heavy. It is heavy. One of the worst childhoods I've ever ever um, heard about. This is a happy moment from uh, Hannah, who is uh, 15 years old, and she writes, I'm sitting with my comforter all bunched up around me. Soft light comes through the windows, spills into my room. It's the milky kind of sunlight that washes the edges off things and makes everything seem blurry. It's a good kind of haze, though, not like during a panic attack. The clouds are pink and barely there, and I am just staring at the sky like I do. I'm pulsing back and forth to the beat of my music, and it feels like a second heartbeat. I can feel anxiety at the edges of things, lapping like waves on a shore, but I just let it be there. I let myself exist. The tides will always come and the anxiety will always be there, but so will sunsets and music and good feelings. Good and bad things exist at the same time, in perpetuity. Bad things always get better, and for the first time in a while I let myself feel hopeful about that. Happy moments don't have to be momentous. They just have to be music and sunlight and letting yourself think past tomorrow. It feels so good. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. And then finally, this is a happy moment from Snowy Owl. And uh, I don't know if it's a he or a she, but they write, uh, happy moment the first time I realized my SSRIs were working after an adolescence of intense chronic depression. I had turned turned down the only college that accepted me after high school, And to get me to do, quote, something with my life, my mom suggested I spend the summer in a program where I would work on organic farms in Canada in exchange for room and board. I was in therapy and on meds for the first time, but still not quite, quote, myself. Still depressed. One day after about three weeks there, on this tiny island full of rich Canadian hippies experimenting with gardening and yoga, I was on my way back to the farmhouse from a walk up the road. And I was thinking about the library of books my hosts had, mostly about collecting wild, edible, medicinal plants and raising chickens and that sort of thing. And I felt excited to get back so I could start reading them. And then I stopped in shock because I realized I was actually looking forward to something happening in my life for the first time in maybe two years. The relief and hope was so overwhelming, I cried. That whole summer was transcendent. Working, working, hitchhiking, walking in the forest, meeting kind and generous people, feeding the goats, glad to be alive the whole entire time. Even the bad experiences. I had two weird, unpleasant hosts. Um, even uh, even those experiences were good because I was feeling my own emotions again. I got spectacularly angry at this one woman, woman and called my mom to talk about it and it felt so, so good. I don't think I ever even read any of those books and it didn't even matter because I was enjoying myself so much love it I remember the first time I felt one of my meds work I was on the road doing stand-up and I was in the comedy condo by myself and there was a show on I remember it was an MTV show where they were following the life of a guy who was trying to become a professional wrestler and something in it a moment in it made me laugh out loud and I couldn't even remember the last time I had laughed out loud. And I was like, Oh my God. Oh my God. There's hope. Maybe I am getting better. Um, I think that's why I wanted to end with that one. Cause, um, it's such a beautiful moment when that just see that little pin light, uh, at the end of the tunnel. It's so nice. It's so nice. Um, well. I hope you enjoyed uh, this episode. If you're out there and you're feeling stuck, I hope you know that uh, that you're so not alone, um, that there is help out there if you're willing to get out of your comfort zone and ask for it, as scary as it might be. Um, it can be the, the thing that really gets the ball rolling for you. And um, just never forget that you're not alone. And thanks for listening.
1: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful bizarre beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.